Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Villander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. My name is David Law. I'm a tennis broadcaster for BT Sport and BBC Radio 5 Live, joined by Catherine Whittaker, also a tennis broadcaster. And we convene as the clay court season really starts to get going now, Catherine, because Madrid is upon us. This is a tournament that a few years ago was played on blue clay. Blue clay, those were the days. Oh, I wish we could have blue clay back. Before we get on to that, I should also add that we have a very special guest on this edition of the Tennis Podcast. It is Paul Hutchins, the man that was the captain of the Great Britain Davis Cup team for 12 years in the 70s and 80s and was the last man to help Britain to the Davis Cup final. He will be our special guest here on the show. We'll be speaking to him soon. But first of all, Catherine Whitaker. Blue clay, discuss. Well, I liked it aesthetically. Uh, uh, the point you've made in, in many a previous podcast is you like things that are different in tennis, don't you? You're a, you're a, a wee bit of a contrarian. Um, so it was undeniably sort of a bit exciting that it was different. However, something being sort of a bit exciting and a bit different at the expense of the integrity of the game. In what way was it contradicting the inter- in- integrity of the game? Well, all they have to go on, I, I mean... I didn't play on it. I didn't experience it firsthand, but I can only trust those that did play on it firsthand who said that the quality of the clay wasn't great. You know, Rafa said that, Federer said that. I can only but take their word for it. And if you want to doubt their word, David, be my guest, but I trust their opinion. Well, come here, Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal, and I'll talk you around. I'll get Roger Federer in the room, who was quite happy with blue clay. Thank you very much. Well, anyway, because of you lot, we've no longer got blue clay. We have to have this red stuff that we have every single other week of the year apart from in Charleston when it's green clay. Hey, that's good, by the way, isn't it? I like green clay. I like, I like the green clay. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i all for any colour of clay, so long as it's good quality clay. What would be your favourite new colour of clay, if you could choose any colour, for the, for the, the Catherine Whitaker Open? <laughs> Maybe some multicoloured clay, you know, different colour inside the lines to outside the lines. Maybe some white clay. Do you remember that Champions Tour event a few years back where, we, where they brought back white tennis balls? That was good, wasn't it? It was good. Now, there's a question for you at Tennis Podcast. Do let us know the, the colour of clay that you would most like to see and why. Catherine Whittaker wants snow-coloured clay. 
The mind boggles. What colour ball would you have to have for that? Uh, like maybe a maybe a red ball, something like that. I don't know. This is all springing from my imagination. <laughs> my uh, my mouth's writing checks that I can't cash. <laughs> oh my word! She's only gone and quoted Top Gun, a film from the mid '80s when Catherine Whitaker was not even alive. Uh, now. On the tennis podcast, we uh, have a big question for you. As uh, as Madrid gets underway, we we're talking about eras because I put out on Twitter recently that Novak Djokovic now has a lead in the rankings, which is the largest lead ever in the rankings since they began. Is it the most dominant in the era that we've ever seen? Is it is he more dominant now? Well, somebody in the background here is really disagreeing with that assertion. There is a two-year-old who's wandering around at the moment who's heard me say that Novak Djokovic is the most dominant player in history and is letting me know that that is not the case. In her, or his opinion, uh, aged two. Catherine Whitaker, what do you think? Is it more dominant? And bear in mind he's won the Australian Open. He's won Miami. He's won Indian Wells. He's won Monte Carlo. Where will it end? What's he going to win next? Could he win the, the calendar Grand Slam? And more to the point, how does Roger Federer era 2005 to 2007, Rafael Nadal in 2010 compare? What do you think? Uh, well, there's a couple of things to mention before I actually declare uh, my opinion specifically on which year was the most dominant, which is that the ranking system changed the points, the calculation of the points changed in 09, I think. So it's not a like-for-like like comparison, the, the lead that Djokovic has this year, compared to leads prior to 09. Do tell. I don't think it's possible to recalculate. If anybody out there wants to try and recalculate what the, if, adjust for inflation, if you like, <laughs> what the uh, what the ranking lead was for Federer in let's say 06 compared to what Djokovic is now all I'm all I can say is it's not a direct like-for-like comparison that is not to take away from Djokovic's utter dominance this year and the fact that no he has done something nobody has done this year which is to win the Australian Open and all three opening Master Series titles of the year in fact take away from take away the Australian Open nobody's won those first three Masters titles of the year and he's favourite for all the Masters titles going ahead and for he's favourite for everything at the moment so who knows where it could end however for me Federer in 06 was in a different league for, it was it was a huge deal if he dropped a set in 06 for me if you recall I haven't always been a Federer fan. I am now. I'm making up for it now by being. Why weren't you a Federer fan? Because he was too good. He was like Superman without kryptonite. He was not human. It was inconceivable that he could lose a match or even look like at any point he might be vulnerable to losing a match. What have you got against perfection? It, it, I couldn't relate to it. He was inhuman. I feel ridiculous about it now because I'm such a Federer fan and I I know once Federer is gone and the the time is nearing us whenever it will be he's not going to be around forever. I will so deeply regret all those years when I was unable to relate to him and unable to support him. But I just felt like you don't need my support Roger. You're just too good. You are the best I have ever seen and is sensational as and dominant as Djokovic has been so far 
this year, for me, it doesn't compare. I mean, I watched Djokovic lose to Karlovic, for example, in Doha earlier this year. Yes, it was the beginning of the season. However, he was he sh- he did show a bit of vulnerability that I could see in the same circumstances. Given the exact same circumstances next week, say, I still think he could lose to Karlovic. It was horribly windy. Karlovic is a horrible player to play against. And uh, he was irritated and not playing his best, and uh, and he lost. And I could see that happening again next week. Yes, those are a very specific set of circumstances, but the fact that I think that that's a possibility, it, a remote possibility for me, Federer in 06 losing, unless something was seriously wrong, just wasn't even a remote possibility, unless it was to Rafa. Side note... Do you know, there's a, there's a lot of blokes listening to this right now who are thinking, this really irritates me. People only become a fan of you when you've got vulnerability, when, when, when there's things wrong with you, when you're doing things wrong. You know, blokes go, go around the world trying to be good human beings. Girls don't even look at them. And then as soon as they become bad and start doing things wrong and losing and, and losing all their money in the casino, suddenly they become interesting. Well, hang on, Federer's not losing all his money in a casino, as far as, far as I know, and he's certainly not bad. All I'm, look, I thought he was... I appreciated him to the nth degree back then. I thought he was the greatest. I thought he was a great man off the court and on the court. I just couldn't support him because he was too untouchable. He was too impervious to any circumstances, any surroundings. I can't relate to that. I'm, impervi- I'm impervious to everything. Um, I'll vouch for that. <laughs> but, and I just, as incredible as Djokovic is this year, I don't see him in that light. But could you? I mean, if he wins everything between now and November, of course I could. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, the, the, the numbers are pretty compelling when you actually look at these two players' eras. Roger Federer in 2005, 81 wins, four losses. 2006, 92 wins, five losses. 2007, 68 wins, nine losses. And he was winning three Grand Slam tournaments a year. I I, I know what you're getting at with that. Well, certainly uh, two in 2005 because he obviously lost the semi-final to uh, Marat Safin. However, Catherine... Let's look at a couple of other players here. Rafael Nadal in 2008 went 82-11. He also won the Olympics and he beat Federer, the mighty Federer, on that Wimbledon centre court. What an extraordinary win that was. What about 2010 when he completed the career Grand Slam, won three Grand Slam titles in a year himself and went 71-10. And don't forget, this guy just kills Federer. He does, but what we're... Disc- I mean, and, and he was sensational in those years. However, what you're describing, what, what we're debating here is dominance, utter dominance. In those two standout years from Nadal, one, he lost 10 matches, one, he lost 11, which is obviously an incredible record. We're, de- we're debating the minutiae of greatness. However, 10 and 11 matches is different to losing four and five, isn't it? I mean, he, he was slightly more beatable he had slightly more off days I mean how many of those four and five losses that I mean I mean the one the uh, semi-final you mentioned he had match points in that match against Safin I mean do you remember what Safin had to do 
to beat Federer in that. I mean, that's what it required to beat Roger Federer. I mean, every time Roger Federer was beaten in those two years or three years, it required something utterly superhuman. Now, looking back to, I, I know it was a, it was one off defeat to. I mean, Djokovic also lost in in the Dubai final this year to Federer, and. Neither of those, I don't think, were superhuman efforts in order to beat Djokovic. And, and let's look back to the Monte Carlo final. Djokovic wasn't great that day. And yes, he didn't win. But had he been up against somebody whose game he matches up slightly less, less well against than Burdich, he, he could have lost that day. Yeah, but hold on a minute. What about Federer? The fact that in 2005, six and seven, he didn't have to play Novak Djokovic. But he had to play plenty of people that were pretty darn good. No, they weren't, though. They were, well, they were good. <laughs> Sorry, Leighton Hewitt, Andy Roddick, Marat Saf, and everybody else in the whole world. You were good. But you weren't... No, no, wait a minute. You weren't dominating an era that Djokovic is dominating at the moment, in which he's having to play two of the... Arguably, the two greatest players of all time. He's dominating in that era, Novak Djokovic, at well, the moment. Well, hang on, look. I mean, I, I would say it's all relative. Federer made everybody else not look as good. Is that, I mean, he just made people look rubbish. Are you saying that he would have made Djokovic and Nadal look rubbish? No, I would say, I mean... I don't think you're comparing like for like. He wouldn't have made Djokovic and Nadal look rubbish. But, I mean, if it was Djokovic now against Federer 06, Federer would be number one. Yeah, but he wouldn't be dominating, would he? And I don't even, don't even know if he would be number one. That's a, that's a good question, isn't it? If we had all those three in their dominant era form at the same time... <laughs> What's going to happen? People hate this question, don't I? Every time I ask, you know, one of our champions talk, who's the greatest? You know, can you compare? Let's imagine that John McEnroe and Rod Laver and Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras were all in the same era. Who would win? You can see their eyes roll and, and they just go, oh, don't, you can't possibly compare, you know, all the platitudes, you know, different racket technologies, different... Yeah, but these guys use the same rackets, don't they? That's why we're, we're sticking with this last 10 years you've got three of the greatest players of all time that have all had dominating periods in and we're trying to say whose was the most dominant i would say now you've made the case for federer there the counter argument is that djokovic has gone 70 wins and six defeats in 2011 and most of those defeats were at the end of the year when he basically run out of gas because he, he won the first 42 matches of the year in 2012, he went 75 wins, 12 defeats, 74-9 in 2013, 61-8 in 2014. He's been incredibly consistent, Djokovic. Yeah, but we're talking about a season of dominance. We're not talking about consistency. And none of those stats he just mentioned measure up to Federer in 06. Yeah, but they must be weighted by the fact that he's had to beat Nadal and Federer in that era at the same time, whereas Roger Federer had Andy Roddick and Leighton Hewitt as his chief and, contemporaries. And Nadal, and Agassi. He had Nadal in early years form when Nadal was more of a threat on clay, less on everything else. But still a mighty threat. And Djokovic has got Federer aged... 33, where he is undeniably slightly less of a threat. I mean, there's caveats to everything. It's a good debate, isn't it? What do you lot think? Let us know at Tennis Podcast. In fact, you have 
been letting us know what you think because Kelvin Gray says it's only April but this is definitely the best quarter of the year I've seen from any player one major three masters still going uh he also says Federer had a weaker era, which is the point I made, and he'd say that Nadal 2010 in context for the competition. I don't really get that last bit. Uh, Susie Reed says that uh, Novak is amazing, but Federer 20, 2005 to 2007 is unparalleled. Matt Roberts says what Djokovic is doing is remarkable, but Federer, I think, had a comparatively bigger lead in 2006. Ultimately, I can only go on my personal opinion. Much as I love arguing with you, I would say Federer in that period as well, just because I think the other things that, are, that you have to add in... I mean, yes, it's a, it's a, he lost nine matches in two years. It's absurd. Plus, I know it shouldn't come into it, but it's the way you did it. It's the, it's the style, it's the elegance, it's... It's, it's the elan. <laughs> yes, to use my word from last week, which I'm going to slot into general conversation from here on. Uh, but yes, um, and I think the other thing is that I think what would have happened if you did put them in, in the same era at that level, you'd just get a lot of a mixture. You'd get a lot of variety of winners. You wouldn't have domination from any of them, I don't think, because... At their very best, Federer didn't have to play that high backhand that he has to play against Nadal all the time in the very early years on other surfaces. He didn't have somebody who could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with him and hit deep shots the way that Djokovic can. But I, th I still think in that ping-pong type match that those two have, I think Federer would have won marginally more. As you know, I agree, David. I think I would go so far as to say possibly more than marginally. I think Djokovic would win some, but I think Federer would come out on top the majority of the time there. Federer in 06. I mean, Federer in, I, I, Federer in 06 was just the best. Just, I mean, just, I cannot imagine anything better tennis-wise than Federer in 06 I mean obviously that would be proven wrong at some point you know there was a there was a time in ice skating when people thought it was inconceivable that quadruples could be they thought it was physically impossible that someone could perform four revolutions in the air and then land obviously somebody at some point in the next hundred years will be better than Roger Federer I just don't know what that will look like it's so impossible it's like trying to imagine a new colour it's not possible <laughs> But it, I mean, okay, the new colour thing actually isn't possible. But the Federer thing, I think, will happen. I just, I've no idea what that will look like. Someone better than Roger Federer in 2006. Don't listen to what we've got to say about it. Let's ask Paul Hutchins. I think probably the most dominating is Roger. And I think that people associate Roger being the best player ever, um, which you can argue. Um, and I think McEnroe argues that Nadal is the best person, uh, best player ever. But I think that people associate Roger, and I certainly would, with his style of play and his character and the way he has dominated the game from an image point of view. I mean, you only have to realise at the um, ATP finals, you know, he's won it, t I think, the most popular player, 10, ten times running or something, or something ridiculous. So I, I think Roger is the most dominant person um, Borg, as we know, and Sampras has won Wimbledon, you know, numerous times, and 
But I just think that Roger is is always going to be known for many, many years, even more than the Djokovic era. Uh, I think he will be known as the, as the person that has dominated tennis, not only from a tennis point of view, but from a style, from a character, and from a sort of a, a good guy image. So I, I really like that that image of um, of Roger being the, the the dominant person, you know. And if we were to go back two generations that, that you'll remember that, that perhaps people listening to the podcast may not remember but you were right in the centre of it and you were part of a Davis Cup team and captaining a team that went all the way to the final which we'll talk about a little bit later as well but is part of your admiration for Federer the fact that he perhaps reminds you of players from that era which you know people aren't necessarily like that today. No, they're not. I mean, people in the era of the sort of the 60s, 70s, you know, you've got people like Rod Laver, um, Roy Emerson, um, people like that, um, beyond Borg. Uh, we were very fortunate once in the Davis Cup to have Borg practicing with us when we played Monaco, uh, Monaco in uh, Monte Carlo. And, and the, it's sort of the, rather like Roger Federer, it's the modesty of these people that I've just mentioned that really, to me, is so great. You know, the, the Edberg era, the Willander era, they were, the Swedes were like modest, good fun, always together, watched each other's matches. Um, rivalry, yes, but actually, you know, uh, respect rivalry. And I think that, you know, you can be from a coaching point of view you know coaches often say come on you've got to be more aggressive and you've got to be this and you've got to be that but actually the people I mentioned you know are very respectful of other people and even people like Sampras and these I mean a lot of it we've been very lucky we perhaps had the Connors and the Stasi uh, era of uh, and McEnroe era of more aggression more not hatred, but more, you know, where there are probably more more tennis rules that were brought in in those eras to counteract their attitude towards things and their their behaviour with a small b um, than anywhere any time else. But whereas with the people I've mentioned, you know, you didn't need rule changes because they had a lot of respect for the game. And probably being the sort of person I am and the the age I am, I sort of. I relate to that sort of thing on behalf of the of the tennis public, really. We've been discussing a lot over the last few weeks as well. It is the big talking point in men's tennis. Is is Djokovic going to career, complete that career Grand Slam by winning the French Open this year? He's up against history in the form of Rafael Nadal, who's going for his 10th French Open this year, and he's only ever lost one match in a decade. He's only ever tasted defeat on that court once in his whole life. Where would you stand on it at the moment? Obviously, Djokovic has got the wins under his belt recently, but this is Rafael Nadal we're talking about. Yes, I think he, I think he will, and I think he could, um, or shall I say, he could and he will, and I think he deserves it. Um, it's, it's also a question of a sort of personality. The personality of Borg and the personality of Sampras was, you know, pretty boring, really. Um, but uh, in, and Djokovic hasn't yet been he's not the type of person that is sort of uh, uh, he's respected by everybody 
but that people like Federer and Nadal have got that personality. And I'm sure that Djokovic wants to have that personality. And I don't know him, um, never met him, and he seems a really good guy. Uh, but I'm sure he would crave after the sort of the adulation that that someone, those players have got versus Djokovic. And it will probably come over the next couple of years, the adulation and the respect will be even more for Djokovic. He is one of the best athletes in the world. He is like a rubber band, the way he moves around the court. And he has that desire to improve that Andy's got. And, you know, Andy and he, I think, have both got the sort of, they're the same age, they've been brought up with each other, and they've both got that, you know, desire level, as as the others would have. I remember speaking to Paul Anacone when he coached Roger Federer once, uh, when he started, and I said to him, Paul, you know, what do you say to Roger Federer when you're day, day one of a coach? And what Paul was saying was that, well, Roger still wanted to know what he had to do to improve. And I think that that's so great great isn't it and that's what Djokovic has got and as well as Andy and they just want to improve and I and I'm I'm really hopeful that Djokovic actually uh, you know gets over this sort of slight you know adulation of Nadal um, and Federer uh, and gets into that into the general public's eye of being sort of a really great guy and a, a one with personality I think he will do it and I suppose if he keeps racking up the number of Grand Slams at the rate he is at the moment. I mean, he's already won eight of them. That's the same number that Agassi and Lendl won in their entire careers. It's just that Nadal's on 14 and Federer's on 17. But how many could this guy end up with? I know. It's interesting. When golf, which is uh, you know a second sport of mine, there's so many winners of so many tournaments in golf, whereas in tennis over the last you know four or five years, and, and you know there's there's quite a small number of people who have been winning the winning the biggies um and in golf you know so many different people win each week almost um i think he can go uh, you know i i think that each era will go higher and higher and i think that you know he's only 27 um he'll probably go till he's 32 33 he's as i say like a rubber band he's beautiful athlete and he's so fit and providing he's injury free and I think the style of play that someone like Roger Federer is, the, you know, the reason he's able to carry on so long is that his style of play is unlike Nadal, where every single shot of Nadal, it's actually, at, out of 10, it's 9 out of 10, 8, 9 out of 10. Whereas people like Federer, you know, he's so smooth and technically so proficient that he would be sort of 6 or 7 out of 10 each shot he hits. And it wears on the body. And I think if Djokovic can, can stay fit and, and he certainly stay motivated because he wants to pass, um, you know, because once you've got all the money in the world, once you've got all the trophies in the world, what do you need? You need history. You need legacy. And I think that these guys, when they get this big, they're, they're fighting for legacy. They sure are. Now, all of these players have tasted glory now in the Davis Cup, the, the ones you mentioned. The one that hasn't so far at the very top level and actually won it is Andy Murray. But Great Britain are now into a quarter-final. It's going to be played at uh, the Queen's Club, which uh, we, we now know about. What do you make of the way Leon Smith is, uh, is running the British team, having been a captain yourself for 13 years and taken Britain all the way yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm. Uh, I know Neon very well. Um, he is uh, uh, good at uh, pulling the team spirit together. Um, but you know, 
One of the big things that Leon has got, which I had in my era, I captained 31 Davis Cup matches, and the majority of those, I had a brilliant number one. A guy, Buster Mottram, who some people would have still known. You know, he was 18 in the world and, and, and a brilliant Davis Cup player. And one of the big things about captaincy is it doesn't matter how good you are, it's what's your team. And with a, with a player like Andy Murray, you've got virtually, apart from, you know, the very, 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 very top people, you've got two rubbers under your belt uh, under normal circumstances. And... Um, you know, you've potentially now in Britain got a great option on doubles. And we've had an option on doubles, uh, thanks a lot to Louis Kea uh, over the years. Um, we've got some good doubles combinations. And therefore, from a team point of view, um, Leon is very fortunate in, in having that. But he's been able to pull those together. He's very good analysis, Leon. He's very good at... Um, uh, dotting all the uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's on what the team spirit should be like good preparation he knows the players he's done a very good job with uh, James Ward and others who he's got into their head you know what to do uh, on the circuit and he's good like that Leon and he's very enthusiastic about Davis Cup as we all were and as, as we all are and therefore I think he's got a good chance but it's all down often to the number one player as to whether or not he um, you know he, he, he pulls the business in and, and, and we're every everybody would think that Andy will because he's such an, an amazing amazing player and yet France is a, a particularly formidable side, isn't it? Because they've got so many players, so many options. I think if we wanted to be, uh, you know, I've been through a number of eras of chief executives and, and different things. And I think if there's one com country that we would like to emulate, it's France. But interestingly, France would like to emulate us because they haven't had a, a, a French Open champion since uh, Yannick Noah. And they would like an Andy Murray. And when I speak to my friends over in France, they're very envious of us. And we're very, I personally am very envious of France because I love the club, se uh, club scene. I love the way they they um, produce their top juniors and give them all an opportunity. And I, I just like the, the depth of, of, of talent that they've got. And that's what we've been you know, missing and, and would love to have. So France are going to be difficult. They've also got good doubles team. And so often, you know, it's going to be based on the first day, whether we can get to one all. And if we can get to one all, then it's the doubles. And it's going to be nail-biting, the whole, the whole thing. But it'll be a very exciting tie. Can't wait. Last pound, where's it going? Britain or France? Oh, definitely Britain. I mean, even if I, you know, even if I, if I thought France, I would say France. But I, I really do think so. I think it will be because I think that Andy can pull in too. Uh, and I think we've got a very good shot in the doubles. And I think James now, James Ward, uh, and we've got Kyle as well behind him. You know, they can do well. And particularly James uh, has proved that. He's now matured into a very good Davis Cup player. I just want James to, you know, um, get that sort of form on the circuit. And I think he can, if he can get that form on the circuit, then he can, you know, he can quickly reach 75 in the world, which is, and then after that, who knows. 
Well, that will be music to the ears of the people that run the environment in which we sit at the moment because Paul and I talk to you from the National Tennis Centre in Roehampton here in London at the moment. And uh, don't worry, we're not under attack, although you may wonder whether we are because of the planes that are going overhead at the moment. Paul did warn me that it would get busy overhead at the moment, but that's absolutely fine here on the Tennis Podcast. We like to go with the elements. But Paul, in terms of looking back at the days that you were captain, I just wonder... When you first got given the job, what what was that? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Moment like for you. I was quite young. I was 31 years of age. And in those days, we're talking about back in 1975, um... And in 1975, the LTA turned a huge corner because it was always sort of rather blazers, you know, blazers of councillors ran the selection committee and the discipline committee and the teams and the, uh, and had all the say. And what they did with myself, and I was very honoured to, to 31 years of age to say, Paul, this is your bag now. Men's, women's, head of this, head of that, Davis Cup. I mean, all the teams, captain of the teams. We used to have a thing called the King's Cup as well, which is like the equivalent of the Davis Cup indoors uh, during the winter. And they rather sort of passed all the sort of selection, discipline, and everything over to me. And in those days, the All-In Club, you know, the, the actual revenue from the All-In Club was, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, a, a few tens of thousands of pounds. Because in those days, you know, the marketing of the All-In Club hadn't come through and the commercial revenues hadn't come through. And we were very orientated towards very low budgets. And it was a very good time because we created in those days, and not only me, but, you know, we created a, a, a regional structure and a national structure. And, a, uh, and, and it was very, it was great. It really was. And I stayed with the LTA until 1987, I had 13 very enjoyable years, 31 Davis Cup matches, tons of 
junior matches I captained, 18, 18, 16, 14, and it was really good. Looking back, I don't know how we had the four children as well, and that, because I was so busy, but it was really good, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at the LTA, and I'm probably one of the few people that sort of left the LTA under good circumstances and, and in 1987, and then I had 20 years gap from, the, from full-time with the LTA, and, but it, my time at the LTA in, for 13 years was really good, and it really developed, and at the end of it, you know, we had the very, very large income from the All-In Club because of all the commercial expertise of the club and, and uh, all the television and sponsorship and, and major events that, that, that we were starting to do. So, but it was a very enjoyable time, very enjoyable. You mentioned uh, the, the, the run that you had, the years that you had in the job. Now, in 1978, Great Britain reached the final and it took six matches that year to get there or five to get there and then the final it's a lot of matches what do you remember about that run yes i mean in those days on 1978 we um we were way back in early in the draw you know i can't remember what it was called but it was probably preliminary draw preliminary rounds and we went all the way through the big match for us was australia in the semi-finals we played at crystal palace and it was it was really, we played three or four or five matches before that. So we were all as a team very united. And it was very important because, again, still like I was talking about Leon Smith, you know, with doubles, we've got, we had a doubles pair. So we had Mark Cox and David Lloyd in a doubles situation. We had a, and we had, uh, you know, many of the matches, not them all, but many of the matches, we have Buster Mottram and John Lloyd. And so we had all four people playing. And the Australia one was a big one because... They had the Wimbledon doubles finalists, Masters and Case, and they had Tony Roach and John Alexander and, and people like that. And they were really good. And beating Australia was rather like, you know, cricket in cricket in test match. You want to stuff these Australians. And we stuffed them. And it was fantastic. We had this match at the Crystal Palace. We, we laid our Supreme Court down at Crystal Palace on the wood boards and and we really did and that was huge publicity for the game because it was the first time in 63 years that we'd got to the final so it was very exciting and then we got to the final against America and we played at Mission Hills and that was McEnroe's first match so I remember being in the tunnel with McEnroe you know walking on it was his first match in Davis Cup and who was this little squirt of a guy you know 18 years of age playing his first Davis Cup and well he turned out to be quite a guy didn't he but anyway it was very good and and we were actually one all after the first match um McEnroe uh, beat uh, John Lloyd then Buster Mottram beat Brian Godfried and and then we but we lost the doubles and we lost the match uh, so but it, it was fantastic that you know we we could get to the final and you know it took it took a long time to sort of replicate that and we got to the semi-final once and we did. We had a pretty good record in in, in those 13 years. I, I have to say, but it was, uh, as I said, it was to do with more of the players than myself. You mentioned McEnroe's first Davis Cup rubber. He'd never played before. A, did you? Could you see then what this guy would go on to become? Let's bear in mind this was 1978. So this is three years before his first Wimbledon title. He, he reached the final, of course, in in 1980 as well, and he, he reached the semis before that. But did you could you tell what this guy would become and and were there also any signs of the uh, the temper the temperament that he would have the answer to your question is yes and yes um you knew 
uh, that McEnroe was going to be terrific. You know, he was such a sort of a you know, uh, it was so it was such a good such a good player at that age. I remember we played Czechoslovakia and Lendl was thrown in his first match at Eastbourne uh, on grass when we played Czechoslovakia and we whip we whip those uh, the Czechoslovakia quite easily. And Lendl was 18 years of age, skinny little guy. But you could tell then that Lendl was going to be great, you know, not how great and not how good McEnroe was going to be. But, you know, we're, we're sort of experts in our field. We like to feel, or I do, and I feel that, you know, at 16, you can tell whether or not the, the guy um, is going to be, you know, you don't know how many Grand Slams or how many tournaments he's going to win, but you can tell the class difference. And with McEnroe first match and Lendl first match, which I also experienced, um, you could tell that they were going to be exceptional players, yes. But um, McEnroe was, and he was just awkward, he was cussy, he was moaning and groaning, but he was great, you know. His talent, his eye-hand coordination, his, his talent for actually, you know, his, his sort of guile of, of the way he played and his unnerving that it was a Davis Cup final because you know Davis Cup finals is a big event and we played in Palm Springs uh, at Mission Hills Country Club and um, you know it was a great occasion for us and we had a lot of support we started the British Tennis Supporters Club there and we had a lot of people flying over and it was a really great occasion and and uh, you know we we had a lovely year that year and we won as you say it was I think it was seven matches and um so we, we sort of started with Monaco and Borg practicing with us and ended, ended with the final. So it was fantastic. Now, you mentioned part of your team as well was John Lloyd and David Lloyd, a famous brother pairing, and they had doubles matches together themselves. You couldn't get two more different characters, could you? You certainly couldn't. No, we had our ups and downs with, uh, with David particularly. Um, you know, D- David was, was a great uh, motivated person, um, and uh, a an average player, but brilliant on a given day. Uh, he had a great forehand, forehand volley, first serve. I mean, he was really athletic, athleticism, you know, and a doubles player, pure doubles player. And he was a great sort of team player. Uh, he was awkward, um, and he was very cussy on things like this, off court and and. You know, we we all know what David's achieved, which is fantastic uh, from a business career point of view. But he was great, and and he and Mark, who Mark Cox, who were the complete opposite. You know, I mean, Mark, you know, Cambridge University and left-handed and very, very straight and very very. And David was this sort of hustle bustle of a of a, a bouncy ball, you know. And but they used to play well. John Lloyd, very funny guy, very amusing. He and Buster Mottram were probably the two most, you know, amusing people I've ever met together. Got up to all sorts of tricks without me knowing, I'm sure. And and John was just a great guy, and I'm still very close to John, and, and it's nice. I'm not close to David, uh, you know, but I'm very close to John. And, you know, he's just a good guy. And he's very, he was a bit of a pin-up boy in those days. You know, he had, you know, he had sort of... Uh, you know, in those days, you're talking about, you know, pretty short shorts, pretty pretty brown legs, and all the girls used to go, oh, yeah. And it was fantastic that, that John, we can look back at John's sort of, uh, sort of social, he was the equivalent of a sort of uh, a gossip, you know, gossip columnist now. And, you know, he, and he, 
married, uh, unfortunately didn't work out with, with Chrissy, and therefore he was the sort of the big social social guy that, that the, the sort of the Daily Mail gossip Collins always used to go to. And he used to be great fun, John, and a good player, very good player, and won some really good matches. When we beat Paris, we beat France in uh, outside on clay, you know, I mean, on the centre court in, in Paris. I mean, those sort of matches you can remember. I mean, match point against Spain on clay. You know, we had some really good matches, you know, and John played exceptionally well, and David as well. It was great. You mentioned that you're you're only as good as your team in many ways as Davis Cup captain, but when you're dealing with those sort of different kinds of personalities that you've mentioned David and John were, and I'm sure others as well that you would have dealt with, and being on the opposite side to a Makira, what? How did you see your role? What? What do you do? You adjust it depending on who you're dealing with. Yes, I mean it's interesting that you know moving way forward in 2012, I was the. Oh, in 2010, I was the team uh, captain of the Commonwealth Games for England. And in 2012, uh, I was the team leader of the Olympics. Uh, and that was brought us into Andy Murray, you know. Um, I think you, you sort of manage a team, and it, it very much depends on the individuals. When I did my 13 years of, of uh, captaincy, I knew the players very well. I made sure that I knew the players and you've got to know the number one extremely well because the number one is the one that you have to rely on. So I knew Buster very well indeed. Um, I was an absolute opposite character to Buster, but I, I got to know the team very well. And we had other people, you know, Richard Lewis, who was the chief executive of the All England Club. I mean, he, you know, he was on the team, John Fever, and, and other people were on it. And I used to know them very well. So I think the first thing to answer your question, the captain has got to know the player. Because, you know, it's no use you sitting on court with a player and telling that player something, what he or he should be doing, that not working, that tactic, and then him looking at you, saying, you are an idiot, you know, why do you do... You can't have that. You've got to have a try and build up a respect, a rapport, that at crucial times in a match, you are the only person talking to that person on court. And it's very important, you know, to how you communicate your tactics and your views to that and it every player is different and I remember when Arthur Ashe used to captain the American team he didn't used to say anything and he wasn't close to people and I think that the good thing about Leon particularly with Andy is that he can he can speak to Andy and if Andy's just lost you know a set and uh, Leon's perhaps told him something that didn't work that Andy doesn't sort of blame him and I think the rapport that you've got as Davis Cup captain is probably the most vital because if you slump which we did we had some pretty bad results then you know it, it's not a sort of a blame game and in Britain there's too much blaming uh, about you know the LTAs the LTAs fought it's that person's fault you know I didn't get any funding and I didn't get this there's too much of a blame game goes on and I think as captain you've got to sort of avoid that and then and then try and get some good team spirit but we didn't always have good team spirit and it's based on the win, not the team spirit. You know, team spirit comes with winning. Um, you don't often get good team spirit when you lose. And your son, Ross, has obviously had a, a, a successful career as well as a, as a doubles player. I just wonder, when, when he declared his interest in following in your footsteps, becoming a player himself, was that an easy decision for you? Is, it, was, is there anything that, as 
somebody who's been very involved in tennis that that is there any, ever any question marks in your mind as to actually I'm not sure I would want you to do that or is it always been the case that well actually this is a great sport you should do it yeah we had four we've got four children and and uh, all four of them were quite good you know either junior national standard or and some of them international standard so it was sort of a, a slow burn I think with all the four children and they're all quite close in age and therefore they all grew up in that environment we we're very fortunate that they went to school in Wimbledon and they we had the all-in club who were fantastic you know on the courts and we used to train there all the time and and, and therefore it was it was a sort of a slow burn and Ross was always the persistent one out of them all he was the one that would come back from injury he was the one that would overcome you know um, all the difficulties and and he was the one that was sort of 16 was sort of set on leaving school early whereas the others all went carried on and went to university and did their a-levels so ross was always sort of the persistent one and always had the ambition to play tennis on a full-time basis so it was a sort of a evolutional thing you know uh, it was a slow burn and it was quite obvious at 16 that Ross was going to play full-time tennis so and he was he, that was his desire and therefore we as parents just supported him and so it was uh, it was pretty obvious really. Now Ross is somebody we've had on the tennis podcast he's somebody I've got to know well certainly involving the Aegon Championships at Queen's where I'm the media director and Ross last year was tournament director he, he came on I remember just over two years ago now when he was just beginning his his treatment for his uh, his Hodgkin's lymphoma which he's happily gone into went into remission from and is now uh, retired from the sport but came back successfully to the sport that must have been quite a moment to see him overcome the illness and actually get back out on court the way he did yes I mean I'm totally biased towards Ross um, as you can imagine as any parent would be but he's a very impressive guy um, he's very impressive you know on his persistence on his career with all the things that he's had ups and downs in his career with injuries and and lots of illnesses and hospitalization and things and then when he had the the cancer uh, you know he was also terribly impressive in that you know he, he wanted to have the chemotherapy he wanted to have it you know he it wasn't a sort of a it was something that he just wanted to get rid of so he you know and all the doctors couldn't believe how sort of positive he was and people talk about that but the mental attitude of a cancer patient is probably the most important thing and so a lot of people say to me well it must have been terrible for you Paul and Charlie and it wasn't too bad because we would have been we would have been sort of you know shivering and cautious and everything else if Ross had been but he was very positive about it and wanted to get rid of it quickly and we obviously supported it and all his brothers and sisters and the family so you know, he just overcame these things, but that is typical Ross. And uh, during his career, you know, he had a, he had a decent career, um, decided in, when he was about 17 to do doubles only, and he played Davis Cup several times and, you know, and US Open and Wimbledon quarterfinal, et cetera, et cetera. And he's done really well. And now he's gone in as vice president of player, the player division of the ATP. You know, he's moved on into the next stage of his career. And he, that's what he does. He's, he's an impressive guy. Well, we wish him all the very best, and it's always great for us to, to see him on the tennis circuit and have him with us here on the podcast. Now, one of your other roles, um, Paul, these days is 
to be involved with the Nottingham tournament. You're the tournament director there. Tell us a little bit about what's going to be happening there this year because things have moved on from last year, haven't they? Yeah, the the Aegon Open Nottingham uh, is the last week before Wimbledon starts. So it's the qualifying week of Wimbledon. Um, around about the 20th, around about 20th of June. And I'm the tournament director, and we also have a WTA up there as well, two weeks before, the first week after Paris. So we, we've really, um, and I've been the relationship manager between the LTA and the City Council for quite, quite a number of years now, and I also chair the Tennis Centre, uh, which we have a three-year agreement with the City Council, because Nottingham Tennis Centre is the biggest tennis centre in the country, 39 courts, biggest public facility and we're determined to try to you know um, keep Nottingham as an event venue and the Aegon um, Open Nottingham will be a very good event and we're just at the process of putting the player field together and on the 11th of May we'll get all the players that will, will be signed up. We've signed up uh, Feliciano Lopez and we're just about to sign up a few other players and I think it would be really good and it's a, it's a thing that I have enjoyed doing. I probably just as soon as, just as sooner and like doing the grassroots side of tennis as well and in my career I've done the performance side and the tournament side and, and the coaching side and the player, all sorts of sides as you know David but uh, the, the ATP is a good challenge um, and you know, I think the Nottingham uh, City Council are right behind us, and I think it would be a very good event. So I'm hoping people will, will sign up. We're we're almost sold out on on the finals day already. So um, you know, we need to get your tickets in quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely, get over to the Nottingham Open uh, website and go on the LTA website. Find out where you can get your tickets for some great ATP and WTA action in the month of June. It's all going to be happening, and Paul will be residing over all of it. You mentioned the grassroots uh, level there. Paul. Now, w- weren't you out in India recently? Yes, I wear various uh, two hats in my business career. I wear an LTA hat, uh, which has uh, always been firmly on since 2007, since Roger Draper asked me to come back and head up men's tennis for three years. And I also, um, I also am very involved in the road to Wimbledon. And the HSBC, who are the official bank of the championships, the HSBC Road to Wimbledon has been with us in the UK since 2002, which I've ran. And we've now, we the club, uh, the brand name of the championships is so strong worldwide that the club wanted to um, maximize the brand, the Wimbledon brand, to Asia. And we decided to start this uh, brand awareness in Asia linked to Star Sports, our television, uh, the, the television company that does all the Asian Wimbledon championships, and to expand the brand with the Road to Wimbledon. The Road to Wimbledon is very successful over here, and we also had HSBC to back us in India because they're very Asian-orientated. So what, what is the Road to Wimbledon? And the Road to Wimbledon is a 14-under tournament, and uh, it's involved 700 clubs in the UK, under 14, and the finals are at Wimbledon in 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 uh, August, every year since 2002. And the Indian side, we've gone over there and we do a series of road to Wimbledon's in India. We have a Masters, and the last two boys and two girls come over to our finals at Wimbledon. And we also link with. Uh, Tim Hemman is the ambassador of the HSBC ambassador. 
we took Goran over recently, Goran Ivanisevic, and he was great. Dan Bloxham, the head coach of the All England Club. And we do a series of tennis clinics, school clinics, children's clinics, uh, went to iconic venues, and we do a lot of coach education over in India, and we basically spread the brand of the Wimbledon Championships and HSBC over in India. And we're also now going to looking at it and uh, at, in Asia. Um, I'm looking, I'm, I'm sort of you know, responsible for the logistics of all this on behalf of the All England Club. And we're now going to go into Asia and do a road to Wimbledon um, circuit in, in Asia in 2016 and 2017. So it's exciting times for, uh, and I'm very fortunate that at this stage of my career, I'm still, you know, seem to have uh, new inventive and creative things to, uh, to uh, keep me and other people occupied. You've only just flown back in from Barcelona, haven't you? The life of the rider you've got. I know, actually, yes. I was also in, in Miami uh, recently on a holiday. Uh, and um, with uh, in Miami because Ross was over there working and I went over there. Yeah, the Barcelona was just with the ATP uh, tournament directors meeting. So I do quite a bit of travelling, but I'm very active still and very pumped up to achieve things for the LTA and pumped up to achieve things for the All In Club. And, and I love every minute of it. That's pretty good, isn't it? Let's be honest. You know, it's a tennis podcast. We're talking to people who love tennis. I get to sit there and talk about it all day. I mean, what, what, what's to complain about? Absolutely, David. We're very lucky. I've been, I've been hugely, hugely fortunate. Just, uh, just to finish off, Paul, I, I just wanted, I mean, I, I'm lucky enough, as I mentioned, to be able to sit and watch tennis and talk about it in commentary boxes. I just wonder... In the years that you did the same, and, and uh, I wonder of the people you shared commentary boxes with and, and so forth, and perhaps met personally, what was Dan Maskell like? Dan Maskell, um, for the more older generation that's listening to this po- podcast, as opposed to the younger generation who may not have heard of him, he was Mr. Tennis. Uh, he was the national coach in the, 50, in the 60s, um, he was a a gentleman, a great guy. He was one of the uh, the sort of the original gentlemen of the BBC broadcast. He had Wimbledon in his DNA. He had grass courts. Uh, he had the the Wimbledon um, the Wimbledon sort of the gut feel of how Wimbledon should be and and everybody but everybody used to quote Dan Maskell and I John Barrett who was a great friend of mine um, my best um, our best man and, and probably someone who's guided me and mentored me you know all his career uh, Dan and John were very close and I used to do quite a lot of commentary with Dan Maskell and John Barrett and Mark Cox and people I did it for about 10 years at BBC and all the other stations and it was really great and and, and he was such a gentleman and had such a, an array of stories and and it was just a, a privilege to be a bit nerve-wracking I'm not normally sort of a nervous poor guy at all but it was a bit nerve-wracking because he was so dominant in the commentary box and as you know David when you go into the commentary box with someone it's a very close relationship I mean you're almost sitting on the guy's lap and you're sharing <laughs> a microphone and whatever he says you've got to 
you know, also linked with. And you've got to be careful with Dan because he had been doing it for so long and he was this, like, upstart whippersnapper Paul Hutchins coming in and pretending he knows all about it. And it was... But it was really good. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was uh, a, a great occasion to have... Uh, the experience with with someone like Dan and with John, and uh, you know, it was uh, he's just such a great, nice man. You talk about Richie Benno, and you know, these sort of people like that. That's what Dan Muscle was. I asked John Invidal not that long ago what Fred Perry was like, and and uh, and 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 also what he would have made of tennis today. And I wonder what Dan might have made of of, of the current era. I think Dan would have been uh, very gentlemanly, very respectful. He would have loved Roger Federer. It's that sort of, you know, he, oh my word, his style, just look at that style, everybody. That's what he would be saying, you know. And he, he, would, he would be sort of oozing, uh, oozing sort of enthusiasm for, for, for people with a lot of respect, you know, and that sort of thing. That's what Dan Maskell would be, would be like. And there are many commentators now, you know, you know Peter Alice, Richard Benno, you know, the late Richard Benno, people like that, that was sort of Dan Maskell. And, and interesting, at our wedding, uh, David, just a 30-second one, Connie, his wife, um, we arrived at the church and the organist had gone missing. So I said to the 40 or 50 people in the church, uh, can anyone play the organ? And Connie, who must have been about 70 years of age then, piped up, yeah, I can, I can play the organ. So I said, Connie, when did you last play the organ? 25 years ago, Paul. Anyway, Dan was sitting there looking at Connie as if, you know. Anyway, Connie played all the hymns and, and, and did a great job and everyone applauded and it was a great fun. And we, we went on honeymoon to Eastbourne and got Connie a... Um, a sort of a little piano and I always remember Dan and Connie being very very appreciative of that it was a nice moment for Dan he was a super guy just lovely uh, lovely memories of that and finally you mentioned you you also knew Fred Perry who comes up so much and perhaps a little less now that Andy Murray has finally won Wimbledon and and taken that out of the equation for Britain waiting but I kind of suspect, and I, I never had the chance to meet Fred Perry, but from the people I know who did meet him and did know him, I kind of feel that he would have liked Andy Murray. Yes, a bit uh, like larger than life, uh, Fred Perry. Uh, I did a few, you know, a few works with him and, and, the, uh, and the commentary and things. Um, I mean, at, at worst, arrogant, but once you knew him, no. Um, very self-assured. Good-looking bloke, you know. You know, you can imagine when he was young, you know, sort of with his sort of long white trousers and and and, and I mean, he's just a really nice guy and and nice family and 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 his daughter and, and so yes, I mean, good memories of those. But that's quite a long time ago, you know. I mean, lots happened in my life and since then, and and uh, you know, we've moved on a lot, and there's lots of new things happening, but. People like Dan and Fred Perry and Rod Laver and other people, they would adapt to the current circumstances. You know, I, I really do believe that. And I think that, um, you know, they're, they're in, the, in our memories and in my memories. But, you know, the, the modern era, 
um, I think is, is fantastic and, and we're very lucky to have the people we've got in the, the top of the game and we're very lucky to have Andy Murray I mean Andy who I know very well and has spent a lot of time with Ross and helped Ross enormously you know when he had his cancer scare, scare. and Andy we've got to be so grateful for Andy you know um, having you know replaced very quickly Tim Hemman who I deal with a lot on the on the road to Wimbledon um, we're so lucky to have someone like Andy Murray and we really should be thankful for that and the LTA we have got to be thankful for that and the club do you, do you think he's got more grand slams in him Andy Murray I think if you went into the dressing room and asked the top 20 players has he got that question I think 20 out of 20 would say yes so that's good enough for me and I think yes um, uh, you know I, I think that certainly he, he he would have other other grand slams because he's so motivated and he's so desiring to improve he is he invests so much money of his own money I know he's wealthy I know he's rich but he still invests so much of his his money and his time and effort in his staff and he's you know he's very faithful to, to many of his staff and he just wants the best for himself and therefore um, you know he doesn't shortchange anything of what he's got to do to achieve something so he will have a great life thinking that whatever he's done if he wins no more grand slams or wins another five he would have done the absolute maximum for his life which is which is wonderful and that's all you can ask that's all you can ask well it's uh, been a pleasure for us to have you with us on the tennis podcast Paul thanks for joining us hi I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter that's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.